Hello, this is Lloyd Wigglesworth from the Alexander Partnership. And in this Talking Leadership podcast, we're in discussion with Leo Johnson, who presents BBC 4's Future Proofing, and he is Head of Disruption and Innovation at PwC. Welcome, Leo. You head the disruption sector of PwC. What is that exactly? So the disruption innovation team looks at, you know, where could a wheel fall off and where could a new wheel be bolted on? So it's it's looking at how some of the mega trends could collide, especially to change business models. Mm. And I think, you know, if you look at, if you look at what's going on with COVID-19, you know, we see a, a, a massive acceleration of disruption. And the biggest question is, what does the next business model look like for mm. business for society? Mm-hmm. You were look. You've been looking at mega trends for quite a while now. Yeah. Your previous roles. What were the major mega trends that you were seeing before this pandemic hit us? So I think if you look at um, COVID nineteen, you know, I, for me, it's 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 both a it's both a crisis in itself, but it's also a symptom of a set of other crises. It's a, it's a phenomenon that we have actually helped to create. It's a effect of an economic system of fossil fuel driven mass consumer capitalism that's been pushing to the limit a number of levers in the system. And, you know, what we've got in terms of the colliding megatrends is a set of kind of unexploded volcanoes of crises that are out there and, you know, we know what they are. We know that there's an inequality crisis. We know that there's a debt crisis with peak national household and corporate debt. We know that there's a climate crisis, which is, you know, out there, which we're distracted from at the moment. We know that there's a manufacturing crisis with jobs being displaced at speed by automation. And of course, this pandemic, the biological crisis, is something that doesn't solve those crises actually in each case what it does my fear is it potentially amplifies them that we are going to emerge from this crisis in a weakened position to deal with the climate crisis with the inequality crisis with the manufacturing crisis the question is how do we get out of this position do we look at this crisis and think, okay, you know, we've really got to focus our attention on recovery translated into putting back the wheels that have come off short term, sustaining uh, superficial change that props up a system. This is Martin Wolf's description of, you know, capitalism post 2008, a system that's both sort of delegitimized, but, but not yet weakened. Do we try once again, to bolt back on the wheels and get, 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 the, get the bicycle moving again? Or do we do not a series of sort of short-term superficial changes, but do we try to look at some of the root causes and address the root causes and redesign stuff that isn't going to fall over next time? So are you saying the world was not in a sustainable place before the pandemic and the pandemic has just highlighted that? I think you've just said in one sentence much more eloquently what I was trying to say. <laughs> so, so 
can we explore that a bit more? So what would make you reach that conclusion before the pandemic had hit? You know, I think we've had a century of a, a model of growth that's been fantastic, that's lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, mm. um, which has been fossil fuel, mass production-based consumer capitalism. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's worked. It's been a huge success story. Mm. But what we're starting to see is that that model has reached its limits. And if you look at the root causes of COVID-19, there's a quite high degree of intersection with mm. the problems of that economic model and the root causes of why this crisis has had the economic and social effects it's had. Mm-hmm. You know, you're looking at a model whose core principle is an economic growth that doesn't value an ecosystem and will cut down forests, will have mass displacement of pathogens mm-hmm. that will then create pools of cheap labor in urban centers. There's, you know, a projected 4.9 billion people living in Asian African megacities by mm-hmm. 2035, where sanitary conditions and population density means that disease will flourish. Pandemics will multiply in terms of infection rates. You've Mm -hmm. got a highly non-resilient global value chain model that bakes in the supply uh, disruptions. You've got a highly leveraged, cheap debt-fueled consumer capitalism model that bakes in the demand side collapse. Mm-hmm. when consumers don't have that spend in their pockets. You've got a manufacturing model of Fordist efficiency-based practices where you've got these highly centralized mass production models that depend on high volume, low margin sales to get unit costs low, mm-hmm. but have got the equivalent of you know, the pre-existing condition of, of not obesity for, for, for pandemic, but corporate obesity, mm-hmm. which is they've just got this fixed cost base which means that they're extremely vulnerable to any shifts in aggregate demand. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is sector after sector, these two factors converging, which is the pandemic penalty. You're exposed because of the nature of your business being one that's highly tactile or real concentrations of people and it's movies and it's transport and it's hotels and it's conferences, all this stuff, education, the the double whammy of the pandemic penalty and the pre-existing condition of being a mass production, efficiency-based, volume-based business, this stuff then creates a great vulnerability, a great inherent instability across the rump sectors of the economy. And the real challenge is how do we deal with that? And it's a race between the liquidity crunch for those businesses and us managing to deal with the biological effects of of this pandemic. So so if the leaders of companies, the leaders of the world, think that their job is to get things back to how they were before this pandemic hit. I think what I'm hearing you saying is that's not enough and that will just be putting a sticking plaster over the problem and we have to think about a different way. Is that right? I think that's exactly right i think the opportunity is to learn some of the structural lessons what has caused the biological economic social impacts of this crisis to be so great Mm. and how can we rebuild something that is actually going to work and 
I think there is a critical, um, critical point of inflection that we're at. You know, that Marilyn Monroe quote, sometimes good things fall apart so that better things can take their place. Yeah. You know, we are at this most Marilyn of moments. <laughs> and I think there's a real chance to, for business leaders to, in a way, think in terms of three horizons. And the first horizon is clearly to, to stabilize. Mm -hmm. It's to find ways to reduce cost, to digitize whatever processes can be digitized to help do that, to, to, to stabilize the ship. Um, mm -hmm. There's clearly, an, and stay in the game, there's clearly a second phase then, which is to look at you know, the processes and the parts of the business model that can be rethought. And it's around people. It's around the finance function. It's around the supply chain, de-risking them, building something that's more resilient. But I think there's also a, a third horizon of innovation, which you know is, is, is the most challenging, which is to start to reimagine a scenario where the dominant model is not, okay, let's try to solve for technology. Let's not try to solve for increasing concentration of economic, social, and political power in some large tech mega platforms where we've said that you know, intelligence really is in the machine and wealth gets concentrated into the hands of the few. And above all, our kind of location of skills and intelligence also gets put in the machine. And we're left with a class of us, the big useless, sitting there on universal basic incomes watching Netflix I think there's a real chance to say, you know what, actually we can do better than that. And to look at what this extraordinary crisis has also thrown out, which is these amazing social antibodies. You know, it's shown that actually there's other stuff we care about. You know, we get out Thursday nights at 8 p.m. and, you know, we bang our pots and pans and we clap communally for the NHS. And we're showing actually we don't just care about technology for the sake of technology. We don't just care about short-term profit maximization. We do care about our health, our air, each other, our neighbors. And I think there's something that's extraordinarily promising and uplifting about this notion that we're seeing of using technology to solve the problems that are out there for the hundreds of millions and coming up with a, a new vision of a much more inclusive society where it's not technology is the answer, it's technology is the amplifier of intent. And we're forming a vision of the type of society we want. And the roles of businesses is to harness and catalyze the talents of their employees to deliver collectively on those problems. That's mm -hmm. kind of what excites me. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised. And how do we start to do that? Because, of course, at the moment, most leaders of organizations are, are worried about protecting their business from what's happening and um, ensuring its survival. How do we shift enough of the energy into visioning this, this alternative scenario that you've started to paint? And that's such, a, it's such an interesting question. And one of the things I look at is sort of self-healing systems. Mm. And, you know, you, you see this in, even in the, the ventilator and respiratory equipment crisis that you know when the global supply chain broke you know, it was the italian doctors 3d printing the 
intricate pieces that the supply chain couldn't deliver and getting local collaborative production. I think in the corporate arena, we're also seeing this self-healing system start to form. Mm -hmm. And it's happening outside the corporation. I think a set of pressures are starting to build. If you think of you know, that old Adam Smith vision of the invisible hand of the market, which turned out to go a little bit wrong. You know, the invisible hand kind of got paralyzed or someone, someone, someone strapped up the fingers so it couldn't really move. And it turned out that what the market ended up directing capital towards was short-term profit maximization, factoring out any type of environmental or social impact. And, you know, it, capitalism became this sort of like a Mustang with the wrong destination in the sat-nav destined to take us over the environmental and social cliff. Now, what you're seeing is already this self-healing system starting to form, which is these other non-regulatory players are looking at what's going on and saying, I'm not sure this completely works for any of us, even for business. Um, and, you know, you're seeing BlackRock with its seven trillion of assets saying, actually, let's be cautious before we start to deploy at scale into continued fossil fuels with the climate change problems they're going to cause. You're seeing uh, the insurers doing the same from Chubb to Axios, 36% of insurers. You're seeing the ESG dynamics. You're seeing the raters, the analysts starting to factor these. And I think above all within the corporate agenda, with inside the corporate ecosystem, you're seeing employees. And what you're starting to see is purpose-eating strategy for breakfast, that what motivates the best employees to join and to stay and then to outperform within the companies if they are collectively solving a problem that matters for them. And I think the combination of that and the biggest external factor, which is where is the opportunity going to lie for business, is the killer. Because the real shift, I think, that, that the future that excites me contains is in a vision of the market. Mm. And if you look at you know, fossil fuel-driven mass production, if you look at mass production, its market was the centralized middle class. It was the urban and affluent billion. And the job was to mass produce consumer products to serve that market. And what we're starting to see is that there's a whole new category of demand that's actually a little bit higher growth, a little bit bigger, and a little bit more successful as a long-term next wave of the market. And it's tapping into what the UN would characterize as the sustainable development goals, but it's the stuff that's solving the problems of the many. And it's education, and it's healthcare, and it's housing, and it's sanitation, and it's a market that's analyzed to be $26 trillion a year. And it's a market where it's kind of the opposite of the old subprime market that gave us the last crisis. It, when you served it with exploding interest rate loans, you actually depleted the capacity of that market to be consuming anything. You, 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 you impacted their credit worthiness. In this market, when you serve, you know, your poorest of the poor farmer with a very simple stack of technologies that might be a solar light with a SIM card in it that means that they can suddenly get access to a banking system to get a loan for the, under, for the, 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 the pump that gets them access to the underground water table that takes their incomes up from 180 to $1,800 a head. What you're doing is you're suddenly just making the buy bigger. 
you're increasing the productiveness and the incomes of the bottom of the pyramid and helping them then move up from being potentially destitute farmers in, in broken fields headed for the, the city to people who can go up the value chain, become, you know, get loans for refrigeration, for agricultural equipment, become small-scale resilient farmers. And I think the really exciting thing is just the convergence of these trends. But if you're a business leader right now, you know, the real chance is to just, you know, harness the sheer talent, enthusiasm, passion of your employees with that extraordinary set of challenges that are out there and use tech, use tech as the bridge to amplify that intent and allow us, I think, to create a, a different model of growth that's an inclusive growth, that's growth based not on exacerbating these environmental, social and economic challenges, but actually solving them. So where have you seen best practice of, of leaders of organizations that, that need to be redesigned in some way? What's the best practice of leaders enabling that to happen? And wh where does it come from? Is, is it being driven by a strategy being seen by the most senior people who drive that down? Or, or is it coming up through the organization, through enabling new visions to appear from, from other people? I, it's such a good question. Um, I, th I think the role of the, the C-suite Mm. is absolutely vital in this. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that really seems to be working, I think, shows a difference in organizational model as well, where it's not directive leadership, mm -hmm. and it's not within the sort of structured top-down verticals and the command and control model of, 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 of production and of leadership. It's where you've got, you know, I always grew up thinking that, like, you know, the definition of leadership was like someone on a horse with a, a sword. Or something like that. That, was a, that was a leader. Um, and I think, you know, where this is really working is it's the, the power is horizontal. The power is in the network. The power is in the collaborations that you're starting to see and the sheer diversity of skill sets inside and outside an organization that can be brought together. And, you know, within that model, I think there's, you know, we have the, the, the leader for me is the one who can help to understand what is out there, to see where the trends are going, to help define a vision of where there's this fit between those needs and the capabilities of an ecosystem. And it's not maybe just that organization that they need to be leading, but it's then somehow to be helping to create and convene that ecosystem and set up a series of structures which maximize the potential contributions of the players in that ecosystem towards the goal that they themselves all agree in and believe in. And it's not them following the leader's vision or the leader's instructions. It's them self-organizing, self-governing and collectively and in a very agile way and iteratively progressing towards that goal. If you were giving advice to a FTSE CEO who's thinking, okay, I think we can get through this and we're going to have to design a different future for our organization. What would you advise them to do first? Cost out. 
then redesigned the, the fault lines. So wave one cost out. Wave two, look at the fault lines. Maybe supply chain would be one. Build in resilience, very short term strategy might be China plus one. Wave three, how do you think about what are the mega trends that are gonna collide to mean, me, may, to mean maybe there's a, there's a reimagining that you need to start thinking about. And I think this next decade for business and society is gonna be a lab of experimentation, but also a lab of intent. Like, what is the future we would like to create? And ultimately, the future we create will be the product of the intentions of a range of CEOs and a range of citizens and a range of employees to try to manufacture, to produce, not to accept, to receive this future, but to shape it. How do we get to the clarity of that intent so that everyone is singing off the same hymn sheet? That's, that's such a beautiful question. And there's something around, ah, I said Levinas, the, the French philosopher talks about the face and the, 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 the imperative of the face, that it's when we see other people, we just, we, we just can't help it. We can't help it. We are drawn into this network of obligation and reciprocity towards them. Mm. And, you know, I think there is this, possibly a window of intent, where if we do start to retreat, if we do start to use blockchain-based facial recognition technologies to ward ourselves off from the other, if we do polarize and fragment, if we do just stay locked in our flats, and even inside our flats, turning away from each other and towards our screens and towards these two-dimensional simulacra of each other on Zoom, which I can't take any more of. I can't <laughs> take any more of. Then maybe we lose that. Maybe we lose that intent. But, you know, I, I think it's when we're out in the parks. It's when we're clapping together. It's when we're passing up, you know, throwing over some potatoes to our neighbor for them to plant in their back garden. As well. you know, that's the stuff that starts... To rebuild it and if this if this epidemic gives us a chance to slow down a bit to rediscover our roots in the people and place around us to you know what that old that great old economist E.F. Schumacher said economics as if people and planet mattered if it gives us a glimpse of that again then I think that will also have a knock-on effect and an acceleration and will form a series of clarified intentions about where we want to spend our time, with who, doing what. Thank you so much, Leo. That was Leo Johnson, Head of Disruption and the Innovation Team at PwC.